Today we begin <laughs> the second half of Revelation, uh, chapters 12 through 22. And the reason I point that out, uh, if you're a note taker, you may want to write some of this down, uh, especially if you're reading through Revelation once a week, as we've been talking about, one of our goals for us as a congregation is each week to read through uh, all of Revelation, especially if you're reading through. Um, this will help you with your understanding of the flow of the text as you're reading along. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting a commentator here named Greg Beale, B-E-A-L-E. Um, he talks about the second half of the book, and he says this, chapters 12 through 22 tell the same story as chapters 1 through 11, but explain in greater detail what chapters 1 through 11 only introduce and imply. It goes into the deeper dimension of the spiritual conflict between the church and the world, which has been developed progressively in chapters 1 to 11. I'll read that again because it's important to help us in our understanding of Revelation, especially as we start the second half of this, this book here. It says this, chapters 12 through 22, tell the same story as chapters 1 through 11, but explain in greater detail what chapters 1 through 11 only introduce and imply. It goes into the deeper dimension of the spiritual conflict between the church and the world. We're going to see fanciful, crazy pictures all over the place in terms that feel to us like super cool 3D movie kind of scale. Um, so, so today, that spiritual conflict begins with the dragon as a symbol of the world, meaning Satan's agent of evil and this little child. In fact, a pregnant woman with a child. So... That's what we see here in 1 through 6. Read along, pick it up at verse 1 in chapter 12. It says this, And a great sign. Hit pause. And a great sign. Turn back to Revelation 1, 1 real quick. I want to show you something there that helps us for Revelation 12. Revelation 1, 1, just the very beginning of the, the whole shooting match. <clears throat> the same word used for sign that we just read in chapter 12 is used at the very beginning of Revelation to tell us how the book is going to achieve its purpose of revealing Jesus to us. Look at Revelation 1.1. It says the revelation, meaning the, the disclosure, the revealing, the uncovering of Jesus Christ. That's, that's what's going on here in Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show that is to, to point out, we've already had two kind of showing words, revelation and to show. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then it says this, verse 1. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. There's another seeing word at the end of verse 2 there. So there are like four, four hints for how the book of Revelation wants to point out to us what it's really saying. So that third one there that we emphasized at the beginning of, uh, I'm sorry, at, in halfway through verse 1, says, He made it known. And that word therefore made it known is the verb form of the noun sign that we just read in Revelation 12.1. It's the same root meaning. you got the verb at the beginning of the book. you got the, the noun in Revelation 12.1. And, and I point that out as a reminder to us that the book of Revelation, and in this passage, is giving us pictures of the reality about Jesus and what He's doing in the world. Pictures 
of the reality about Jesus and what he's doing in the world. We've been saying, remember, from the very beginning that Revelation is a picture book. It's not a roadmap. It's a picture book. Now, more pointedly, these signs that we come across in chapter 12 are in keeping with what's hinted at the beginning of Revelation, namely that we are being shown, we are being signed, we are being symboled the true character and nature of God and the evil one. That's what we're being given a glimpse into in the book of Revelation, the true character and nature of God and the evil one and the spiritual conflict. And in fact, we'll see in these three scenes an epic spiritual battle that is shown in three different scenes here. The dictionary says this about this word sign in chapter 12. If you think I'm making this up, the dictionary says this. A sign is a picture by which the character and truth of any person or thing is known. These signs that were being shown in Revelation, they're pictures by which the character and truth of any person or thing is known. Which is to say, it's the inside thing that counts here. It's the inside thing that is the truth that Scripture wants us to see. Not so much the outside parts. Please don't miss this. It's the inside thing, the spiritual truth, the true character and nature of the person or thing that's being described that we're meant to see. Not just the outside. So don't get stuck on outside. Look for inside. So here in chapter 12, just like is hinted earlier on in Revelation 1, like we just talked about, we are being shown the character and nature of God and the evil one, and the conflict between the two, the spiritual battle for souls that goes on between the two. Now let's, let's look at what this epic battle looks like. Keep reading verse 1. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven. If you'll remember last week, John was shown the, the, the temple in heaven, and he sees the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence there. And he here sees another sign. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven in the spiritual realm The first of which was a woman, it says, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now we see here, described around this this woman here, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if we were well-versed Jews, like the Apostle John who wrote this was, if we were well-versed Jews, we would instantly know that this is a vision here in chapter 12 that brings back memories of Genesis 12. I'm sorry, Genesis, Genesis 37, verse 9. Genesis 37, where Joseph the dreamer, if you'll remember, he tells his brothers, behold, I've had another dream. And in this dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars all bowed down to me. And he, of course, was the twelfth star. So if, if we're John and we're seeing this vision, we come across this sun, moon, and stars, we know that there in Genesis, those twelve stars represented the twelve tribes of Israel. And then there even began to soon develop this tradition about the twelve stars of Israel, that they were untouchable, that they were uh, not able to be damaged, that you, they were like the stars in that no one on earth could harm them. So that tradition began to be the case about how the Jews were considered protected by God. There are a few other places in Scripture that talk about this, not just Genesis 37. So, when John sees this vision of a woman surrounded by the sun, moon, and the stars, and we'll talk about the woman a little bit in a second, he knows that she is representing the indestructible Old Testament people of God. The true people of God. Of God from the Old Testament. They would be safe regardless 
And this is the spiritual battle thing. Regardless of the appearance of things, they would be safe. So verse 1 teaches that this sign of of a woman represents the people of God kept safe by God. So look at verse 2. This woman says she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This particular part of the vision inevitably reminded John of the pain of childbirth that was spoken of in Genesis. The first time it shows up in Genesis, the pain of childbirth, of course, is a part of the curse. In fact, I think Revelation is saying in passing, and there's evidence for this later on too, remember Eve in Genesis who was bearing the son that she thought would be the Messiah? I don't have time to prove all that today. You'll have to go listen to my sermons from two years ago from Genesis 3 and 4. Uh, Eve thinks she's bearing the Messiah. Revelation here is pointing, is hinting at that theme of the promised Messiah even back in Genesis. So Revelation is saying here, this is how the epic drama with the people of God and Satan began and is going to be played out. That's what's going on here in these first, uh, this first image. Revelation's saying these signs that I'm going to show you, these signs I'm going to show you have truth about how spiritual war works. And of course, Revelation being a picture book, if you want to create some tension, some sort of narrative tension in this drama, uh, then you, you, you have this woman who is trying to bear a child, which might be perhaps the most vulnerable position Uh, imaginable and then you add a dragon who wants to devour the the baby and then to add more tension you give the dragon seven heads and a bunch of horns so that's what goes on here look at this verse three another sign appeared in heaven behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems now look at verse 4a Verse 4a is a little bit of a tricky one. I think that this passage is about spiritual battle in general and is applied in both now and not yet terms. And we don't have a whole lot of time to justify all of this, but if you want to check me up on this a little bit, read three passages later on. Daniel 8, 10. Because I'm about to tell you something about verse 4a. Daniel 8, 10. 2 Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6. Daniel 8, 10, 2 Peter 2, 4, and Jude 6. Add this vision and 4a, plus those three kinds of passages, and there are a few others, but those three especially. And I think that verse 4a, where it says, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to earth. I think that is about the original fall of Satan and his angels. So this original fall of Satan and his angels, by which they declared war on God, took the form of persecution of the church, and here also an attack on the Messiah. And that's what's pictured here in verse 4b. It says, The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That woman, of course, is the people of God from whom the Messiah would come. And the male child is, of course, Jesus And it continues, verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's obviously the Messiah Jesus. But 
And this is written to sort of heighten the dramatic tension, so, so sort of just in the nick of time. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, sort of like just beyond the grasp of the red dragon's uh, fangs. It says this, verse 6, The woman fled into the wilderness, which sounds exactly like the Old Testament people of God fleeing into the wilderness. So this is sort of a new exodus going on here in Revelation. It's hinting back at that and saying, remember remember that? (laughs) That was spiritual warfare too. So this is the new exodus going on here in Revelation. It says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, which is why we call this section here, why we call this section, God's kingdom produces and protects a king. The Old Testament God, Old Testament people of God obviously produced the Messiah, but the kingdom of God also protected the king. And we see that idea here, and in other places in these passages here, because it says, she fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. This toward the end of this section, makes explicit what the earlier sort of passing mention of the sun, moon, and stars just kind of implied, which is that safety is going to be, uh, safety is for the people of God is going to be in operation in the kingdom. We see that even later on. Uh, So let's keep reading on here for the next image. The second image is 7 through 12. And this next picture of the spiritual battle is the dragon versus the angels. The dragon versus the angels as um, agents of God. This section reveals the same thing. (laughs) The same thing as the first section. But from a heavenly perspective. Everything that went on in the first section is sort of uh, an earthly vantage point. And what's going on here in this next section is a heavenly perspective so it's, it's sort of like uh, the same spiritual conflict, the same things going on, but as seen from a heavenly or spiritual realm. Look at verse 7. It says, Now war arose in heaven. Heaven is a place, yes, but it's also a generic word in Scripture for the spiritual realm. Michael, who was the biggest, baddest, fiercest angel, and he always shows up when it's really on, war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, again, like verse 4 earlier, this is the original fall of Satan and his angels. It's just a little more detail from a heavenly perspective. This war here in uh, verses 7 and following is a heavenly perspective and greater depth of focus than verse 4. Look at verse 9. It says, a great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent now we're being shown the dragon's true identity it's the serpent from the garden who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world and it says this he was notice it doesn't say he will be but he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down thrown down with him this if it is the original fall has already happened i'll talk about that a little bit more here in a second look at verses 10 through 12 I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But you, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Three things I want to point out. The first two are kind of minor interpretive things. The last one's uh, a big deal. Uh, first, the parallel of his time is short at the end of uh, verse 12 there, is a parallel with the 1260 days that's previously mentioned in verse 6. It was also previously mentioned uh, in other uh, couple of chapters before us here. I take that to mean a temporary amount of time that Satan has to reign in great wrath this side of heaven from the time that he fell to the time Jesus returns a second time to finish. Not everybody thinks the same way I do about that. I think that the 1260 days is a temporary kind of time from when Satan originally fell to the time when Jesus comes back, when he, quote, reigns in great wrath. So um, others think differently. You can think I'm a liberal. I don't care. Second, the heavens here in verse 12 are shown, they're pictured here, to represent the place where the presence of God saves and the earth represents the place where the devil's wrath is felt. Are they places? Yes, of course they're places. All spiritual truth has literal and tangible consequences. All spiritual truth has literal and tangible consequences. But they're not just places where we're supposed to weasel out some sort of human meaning alone on the face of it. I want us to continue to learn to think a little more spiritually about this. This is a heavenly viewpoint, a spiritual realm kind of picture of the epic battle between God and Satan. Now, thirdly, the big question. You may read this and you may think, how could this have already happened? Well, there are lots of reasons. Uh, Let me just... Let me just say some things generally. One lesson, if you haven't already caught this throughout Revelation, we've talked about this a bunch of times. One lesson about Revelation is that it's a picture of the now and not yet nature of salvation. There is both a now, I have it, and not yet, I don't have it, nature of of salvation and a relationship with God that is going on this side of heaven until we are in glory with him. Now, if you can figure that out, you'll be the best theologian that's ever lived. Um, we've talked about this, but I think that one lesson that is especially germane for us is how Scripture is trying to tell us how much salvation there is now. The obscurity of the flesh and the world and sin is what is what we are enamored with and damages our ability to see the spiritual truth that is there. The already part of being saved that is in the pages of Scripture. I think this has already happened because Scripture tells us it's happened. I think the kingdom has already arrived. Not totally, not fully. The glory of God still has yet to be made fully known, obviously. Duh. But, Scripture tells us that the kingdom has already arrived and will, after the trumpet sounds, uh, come in its full measure. 
But the kingdom is now here today available in a way which means that Jesus himself can say in Matthew 3, 2, I'm going to quote a bunch of scripture here that you're going to want to follow along if you're taking notes with. Matthew 3, 2, he says, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And he doesn't mean next time I come. He means when I'm, when I'm here and I die, repentance is available to be had uh, for you. Salvation is available to be had. Mark 3, 2. Mark 1, 15. He says the time is fulfilled, meaning I'm here now, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. He says in those passages, it's the coming of the kingdom that allows Jesus and his followers to validly preach repentance so that it actually works. If the kingdom's not here, you can't do that. Add to this passage, Scripture passages like John 12, John 12, 30-35, where Jesus Himself says, referring to His own death, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be, He even says then, cast out. Uh, look up passages about binding the strong man. Uh, Colossians 3, 1-4, where Paul applies the truth of the already victorious life that we have. And he says, verses 2 and 3, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Acts 2, 24, where Christ is described as loosing the pangs of death, not the second coming, at the cross. Loosing the pangs of death. Ephesians 1, 3, where in Christ we are called blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are spoken of there as having already taken hold of it. Toward the end of Hebrews and a bunch of other places in Scripture, believers who die are said to have conquered because they already have eternal riches in Christ. They don't have to wait for it. It's already theirs. The final enemy isn't the last enemy in human time. Stop thinking earthly and fleshly as if we can impose our stopwatches on Scripture. As if things that we read in Scripture have to be measured according to our scales. That is a disaster interpretively, by the way. Reading Scripture as if our time equals God's time, which it doesn't. The final enemy isn't the last enemy in human time, but in the sense of the last enemy of death, which has been now and is being not yet overcome. It's a truth that's validly here now for us enough so that we can, with these loud voices in 10 through 12a, we can say that the accuser has no power to condemn me. Romans 8, if you need more. Scripture tells us that our life now has already been taken up with God in Christ so that we can validly proclaim with an already true sense of victory that because of Christ, we are now conquerors. Already? Not yet. We like to default to not yet. But there's a lot more already. There's a lot more already. That's part of what I'm praying for for us to see now. For myself and for you. Because that is the reality out of which we are called to live. That is spiritual battle that we see in these pages. The last picture. More on that someday when we talk about the kingdom. We've got to get through Revelation and I think the Holy Spirit probably next. <clears throat> Alright, third picture. The last picture of the great spiritual battle in which we're engaged. 
shows us that Satan is trying to take down as many as he can along the way. If he can't take down Jesus, he's going to try to take down uh, as many as he can along the way. Look at verse 13. The thing is, God will protect us. God will protect his people. And when the dragon saw, this is verse 13, when the dragon saw he had been thrown down to the earth, in other words, when he noticed that his reign was temporary and earthly, which he knew that the second after he was kicked out of heaven, obviously, he pursued, that word there can also be translated persecuted, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. It says this, but the woman, and this is more flight into the wilderness imagery from the Old Testament, the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. That's protection, that's freedom, that's being away from the the, the problem. To the place where she is to be nourished, protected for a time and times and half a time. This is a picture of protection, even though the serpent, verse 15, keeps fighting. Now, says this, the serpent obviously gets mad, verse 15. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, which is more Old Testament imagery. Um, there are a dozen plus places in the Old Testament where the people of God are said to, to be saved from the overwhelming flood. We sing about that in our hymns. Uh, one of the best ones is Isaiah 43.12, which is a cool verse, a really beautiful verse. 43.12 in Isaiah says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. So verse 15 is a threat to the people of God. But verse 16 shows how serious God is about making His purposes come to pass. It's a picture of how serious God is about making His purposes of redemption happen. This is a cool picture, verse 16. It says, But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. That's why we talk about God's kingdom here protecting His people. Look up uh, Exodus 15.12 um, if you want some more about that. Uh, the earth was said there to swallow up the Egyptian. The, the, uh, Egyptians, while the Israelites passed through on dry land. Same kind of phrase there. So, of course, naturally, now that they're protected, uh, the dragon uh, is not happy. Verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's us. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We're given two weapons of warfare there we'll end up with in just a second. The commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. And then it says he stood on the sand of the sea. Which uh, picks up an image earlier on in Revelation. <clears throat> Friends, we've just seen three scenes in one chapter uh, that may encompass uh, the broadest scope uh, and, and the most sort of timeless sweep uh, in, in all of Revelation and perhaps all of Scripture. In fact, the word timeless may be a good way to describe them here. And these scenes, these scenes, don't miss this, are not just meant to be dissected sort of verse by verse. They are meant to tell us who we are. They're meant to be experienced. We should have some empathic camaraderie with what's going on here because we're engaged in this battle. This should look and feel like our battle for our soul. We are God's people living out an epic drama. Don't, don't, 
Don't let the world or anyone else tell you who you are and what your story is. That's all hogwash. This is reality. When the dragon in verse 17 goes off to make war on the woman's offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and who hold to the testimony of Jesus, that is, that is us. We are there. We are called to be participants in this drama. And as such, we must always remember that if we are in the right battle, we should expect that the devil will attack and accuse. And so often, so many of us seem surprised by it. taken sort of unawares like what to expect attack also means to prepare for it if you're not in battle you're not prepared if you're in battle you're prepared for attack if you're living your life as if you're training because the evil one is accusing you but you know you're a conqueror then you will sense my life feels like this. Matthew 10, when Jesus sends them out as sheep among wolves, He doesn't say, beware of anything other than this. Beware of men. He says that at the beginning, and then He lists a bunch of examples. In Matthew 10, look it up. Beware of men. And then tells them they'll be dragged to court, flogged in the synagogue, delivered over by one's own family. All of those as agents of the evil one, the red dragon here. And then he says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Friends, we prepare by being word-soaked believers so that this story is telling us who we are. We prepare by being word-soaked believers whose filter for our lives is not the world's story about who we are but God's story about who we are. We conquer by a testimony that knows that the dragon could not touch the child, nor could it defeat the angels, nor could it overwhelm the woman. Friends, that is your story. So continue to pray that your limited perspective, our worldly damaged by the flesh perspective, would not be what tells us in our hearts who we are. Raise up your eyes. Revelation is calling us to see what's really going on and what God wants to teach you in His Word. However however visible, however tangible, however real, however present this material world seems and feels to you now, God's Word is telling us that the most real thing going on is and always has been the age-long struggle of God's people versus the evil one. That is reality, not our misperceptions. Not silly little skirmishes on the outside. Not our little misperceptions that are largely based, frankly, on our selfish, small desires for our lives. The real battle is spiritual warfare for your soul. It's not whether you have a good job or enough money or a big enough house. It's not whether your kids have a good enough job or big enough house or enough money. The real battle is what do we do about sin? And for those who are believers, it is fought with the two weapons that we see in verse 17. 
obedience, and testimony. That means two things. Number one, what we do counts. Obeying God's commands counts. And that what we have matters. And that what we have is the only thing worth having. The testimony of Jesus. Obey God and cling to Jesus. And you will be just fine. Revelation is telling us if we obey God and cling to Jesus, everything is going to be okay. Let's pray together.